all Paul is saying there is that we're not under the Old Covenant. We're not under the slavery of the Old Covenant ceremonial laws. We are under the New Covenant. We have liberty and freedom in the New Covenant. Don't go back. That's what he's saying. Verse 1 of chapter 5 should actually be verse 32 of chapter 4. Uh, it says there, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Uh, so for the Jews in that day, or in the Gentiles in that day, what it meant was don't go back to the Old Covenant ceremonies. But even for us personally today, what that means is do not go back to any form of slavery under which you found yourself before you became a Christian. Before we were converted, we were slaves to sin, slaves to false religion, slaves to false ideologies and deceptions. You're liberated in Christ. Stand firm in that freedom that you have in Him. And I'm thankful for that freedom. So let's go to the Lord in prayer now, and then after that we will open up His Word and continue to study deeply through the book of 1 John. Let's pray. Holy Father, it's amazing how much You have loved us. We who have voluntarily gone astray, we who have broken Your law, we who have sought to rob You of Your glory, we who would strip You off the throne had we had the power and authority to do such a thing, and yet it is for people like us that You sent forth Your only Son into the world, clothed in human <clears throat> flesh, that He would bear the wrath and judgment that we rightly deserve. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What a wonderful expression of love. We thank You for that, Lord. And we thank You that through the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and His current intercession for us at the right hand of the Father in Heaven, we now enjoy freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from deception. Freedom from Satan's dominion. Freedom from the Old Covenant ceremonial laws that the people of God were under at that time. Freedom from the moral law as a covenant of works and from its condemnation and curse. You have liberated us from that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. And so we rejoice in the glorious reality of freedom. Freedom that no one can take away from us. Our national freedom can certainly be taken away from us. Some of those freedoms have been taken away over the last year and a half or so. But the freedom we have in Christ can never be taken away. And so may we stand firm in that freedom and not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. May we never go back to the false religions and deceptions from which You've saved us. But may we hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to our confidence to the end, knowing that if we do, we shall enter into glory and enjoy the full expression of freedom in the new heavens and the new earth. So thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for our local church, for every member of the body, all of our members, all of our regular attenders and visitors. We're so grateful for this little church. And the work that you do here is amazing. The love that these people have for one another and for us is tremendous. So thankful to be a part of a faithful little local church. I pray that you would continue your work in all of our hearts and lives, that you would forgive our sin and our iniquity, that you would cleanse us 
daily from our transgressions, and you would help us by the Spirit to have increasing victory over sin and become increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. And now as we open up your word and as we continue to dig deep into the truth of Scripture, we pray for help. We pray that the Holy Spirit from heaven, who now lives and dwells in our hearts, would open our minds and hearts and understandings so that we might grasp the truth and live our lives accordingly. And we pray all of these things for the glory of our Savior. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me yet again to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And we have just one more passage to go. We've come to the final section this morning. One more passage, and we'll finally have completed our study of 1 John. And that final passage is verses 13 through 21. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. A text that will probably take us three weeks or so to get through, but a few more weeks and uh, we'll finally be done with 1 John after, uh, I don't know, eight or nine months, so a long time in coming. But hopefully you've enjoyed it, it's been a rich study, and you have uh, 1 John dwelling in your mind and heart by now. I hope that's the case. And if you want a preview of what's coming next, I think we're going to go through the book of Titus next. Uh, it's three chapters, it talks about how the church is to function and how the church is to be a witness to the world. I think it'll be a good book. So if you want to start reading ahead, you can begin to read the book of Titus now, and in three or four or five weeks or so, we'll be in that book. But for now, 1 John 5, verses 13 through 21. And by now, we all understand John's message. It's been very clear. If there's one benefit to constant repetition, it's the fact that you are going to remember what's being said. You're going to get the message if someone keeps saying it over and over again. John, we know, wrote this letter to provide the believers of Asia Minor with assurance of their salvation. He wrote the letter because of a group of false teachers, Gnostic heretics, were there seeking to deceive the believers of Asia Minor. They had essentially denied the true nature of Christ. They had rejected the necessity of obedience. They had rejected the centrality of love. In a word, they had denied the fundamentals of the faith. They had concocted their own version of Christianity, which was a poor substitute. So John wrote the letter in order to refute these heretics and to provide these believers with a series of tests by which they could discern between true Christianity and counterfeit Christianity, between a true believer and a false believer. And the tests that it contains are transcendent. They are helpful for every church in every age throughout every time. And the same is true for us. The three tests of 1 John are, as you know, doctrinal, moral, and social. True Christians believe the truth, obey the truth, and love in truth. John has presented these tests over and over again relentlessly. And now he comes to the very end here, and he brings it all to a very fitting conclusion. And as he does so, he rehashes some of the same familiar themes one more time. So let's read the passage together. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before Him 
that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. The theme of this passage becomes obvious from a repeated word there, used over and over again. And it is the word no. The word no. It's used seven times in these nine verses. And a synonym for the word is used once in verse 14. The word confidence. Confidence. John is telling us that as Christians, there are some things that we can know with certainty. There are some things that we can be certain about. There are some things about which we can be confident. As a Christian, we can know. That stands in contrast to the age in which we live. We live in a culture and a time period that we often refer to as postmodernism. Postmodernism. And one tenet of postmodernism is the idea that truth is relative. Truth is subjective. Truth is changing. Truth is determined by each individual person. Each person can determine for himself his own truth. I have my truth, you have your truth, but there is no absolute truth. There's no binding truth that is bound upon every human being. This is a very convenient ideology, isn't it? It has a dazzling appeal to the sinner. Because the moment someone comes and confronts me in my sin, or confronts me in my error, all I have to do is say, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Who are you to judge me? Who are you to force your opinion on me? Homosexuality may be wrong to you, but it's right to me. Christianity may be your truth, but Hinduism is my truth. This becomes a sort of a cop-out, doesn't it? A covering for evil. An excuse. A justification for any action or any philosophy or any religious belief. It is simply my truth. Intellectually, this leads to relative truth. Morally, this leads to moral relativism. And then religiously, it leads naturally to what we call pluralism. Pluralism. There's no one right way to God. There's no exclusivity. There's no one right religion. Maybe you go through Christianity. Maybe you go through Hinduism. Maybe this person goes through Buddhism. But we're all at the bottom of the mountain seeking to get to the top where God is. 
we're all taking our different paths to get to the same mountain peak. You might go through your religion, this person through their religion, me through my religion, but at the end of the day, we're all going to make it to the top of the mountain. In reality, they fail to realize that a biblical picture is that we're all dead at the bottom of the mountain. And unless God Himself descends the mountain and gives us life, we'll never get to the top. And of course, we know God has done that in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's the idea. We're all just trying to get to the same mountain peak, and regardless of which path we take, we all get to the same destination. What this really does is that it rips God of His right to be the determiner of truth. I become the determiner of truth. At least truth for me. I become the ultimate arbiter of truth. My desires, my passions, my evil lusts, they all become the determiners of what is true. It must be true that homosexuality is okay because it feels right to me. It must be true that Buddhism is a valid religion because it works for me. It feels right to me. Therefore, it must be true for me. So essentially then, this ideology rips God off the throne. It robs God of His right to determine truth. The sinner makes himself out to be God. The very thing promised in the garden, wasn't it? Eat of the tree. The reason God doesn't want you to is because He knows the day you do it, you'll become like who? God. That's what postmodernism offers you. You can be your own God. You determine truth. You're the captain of your own ship. You're the creator of your own reality. You're the Lord of your own life, the determiner of your own truth. You can be your own God. At the end of the day, the mantra cry of postmodernism is that there is no absolute truth. Of course, there is an obvious question that begs to be asked, isn't there? Someone says there is no absolute truth. We say, is that true? Is it absolutely true that there's no absolute truth? If the answer is yes, well then they've refuted themselves because there is absolute truth. If they say no, well then again they lose because their worldview is not true. Why should I receive it? It's a lose-lose situation. It's a self-refuting worldview. An illogical worldview. One that is only held by those who seek to justify their sinful rebellion against God. Imagine if someone lived their life as if truth really was relative. Imagine if they took their worldview to its logical conclusion. You could see see it now. A guy goes to the bank and says, hey, I need to get a million dollars out. And the banker says, sir, you've only got five dollars in your account. And the man says, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. See how far that's going to get you, right? The banker is going to laugh at you and say, sir, you're out of your mind. I don't care what you believe. You've got $5 in your bank account, and that's not my truth. That is the truth. That's the absolute truth. You could imagine someone pulling up to a red light and say, hey, it might be red to you, but it's green to me. How's that going to work? It's not going to take long before you're in a car accident. You get pulled over by the cop and try to justify that one, right? That was a green light, officer. Perhaps you could imagine a person who says, there's no such thing as gravity. Gravity is not true for me. Well, just get on top of a building, jump off, and see how that works for you. Gravity is true regardless of what you believe. 
Because truth is not relative. Truth is not subjective. We learn in kindergarten and first grade the difference between truth and opinion, don't we? Fact and opinion. Fact, truth is reality. Opinion is just what I like, my preference. Those are two different things. Gravity is true, whether you like it or not. Truth is truth for everyone, regardless of what they think, believe, or feel. So clearly then this notion contradicts basic logic. It's illogical. But of course the worldview also stands in stark contrast with the teaching of Scripture. Scripture is clear that there is absolute truth that must be believed by every person. All men. In John 14, 6, what did Jesus say? I am the way and the what? The truth and the life. The truth. In John 17, 17, Jesus referred to the Word of God as truth. He says, your Word is truth. In John 16, 13, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of truth. Throughout the Bible, God is referred to as the God of truth. And Scripture is clear that God's truth is true for everyone and must be believed by all people. God is the determiner of truth. That's what we're saying. God is the determiner of truth. There's no my truth. There's no your truth. There's God's truth. All truth is God's truth, and God's truth is true for everyone. God's truth must be believed. So as Christians then, we possess absolute truth. We have a superior, what we could call an epistemology. That's the branch of philosophy that deals with how we know things. How can you know anything? I can know things because God has revealed them to me, because God has made me in His image, God has created me as a rational being, and therefore I can think rational thoughts after Him. I have revelation from God. So we possess absolute truth. In a world of darkness, in a world of philosophical confusion, a world of intellectual absurdity, believers possess absolute truth. From God, from heaven, in Scripture. And there are several absolute truths that as Christians we can know with certainty. What are some of those truths? Well, in this passage, John presents five of them. Five absolute truths that you can know with certainty. Five absolutes that you can be certain about. And over the next several weeks, we're going to look at these five absolutes one by one. So with that said, let's consider the first one. Absolute number one, eternal life. Eternal life. We can know that we have eternal life. Look at verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Here John tells us the purpose for which he wrote the letter. This is John's purpose statement. Here's why he wrote these things. In the immediate context, these things could refer back specifically to verses 11 and 12, where John has stated that God gives us eternal life in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. But more than likely, it refers to the whole letter. The whole letter contains tests by which one can determine if he has eternal life or not. The whole letter serves as test of saving faith. 
So John wrote these things, this letter, to provide his readers with assurance. Assurance. But not only does John tell us why he wrote the letter here, he also tells us to whom he wrote the letter. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. 1 John is a letter written to believers, to Christians, those who profess faith in Christ. The Gospel of John was written evangelistically to non-believers. 1 John is written to believers to convince them of their salvation. So it's written to those who believe. The word believe here is a present tense verb denoting continuous action. It could be translated believing. John wrote the letter to those who were currently believing. Those who were currently professing faith. And what is it that they believe? They believe in the name of the Son of God. They believe in His name. Now we don't use the word name the same way that first century Jews would have done so. The Hebrew notion of a name is inseparable from the person. The name of someone refers to his character, his person, all that he is. The person's name is inseparable from the person who bears the name. So to believe in his name is to believe in his person. It's to believe in all that he has revealed of himself in the Scripture. It's to believe all that John has said about Jesus so far. To believe that He's fully God, fully man, that He died on the cross, that He rose again, etc., etc., etc. That's what it is to believe in His name. So this letter was written then to those who passed the doctrinal test. To those who believe the truth about Jesus. And it was written so that, so that translates the Greek word henna, it's a Word that denotes reason or purpose. Here is the reason, here is the purpose for which John wrote the letter, so that you may know that you have eternal life. It would be a good thing to know, wouldn't it? In a world of uncertainty, a world in which we never know what virus may get us next, which person might go crazy with a gun in public, never know when a bomb is going to go off. We know we have eternal life. That would be a good thing to know. We talked about eternal life before. Eternal life is not merely a quantity of life. It's a quality of life. It's not just a duration of life. It's a kind of life. It's not just about how long it is, but the type of life you possess. It is to possess the life of God within your soul. It is to be in saving relationship with the One who is eternal life, that is Jesus Christ. And it is to possess that life and that divine communion forever. Forever. The fullness of which awaits the second coming, the resurrection, and the inauguration of the eternal state. But we already possess eternal life if we are Christians. And we can know that. That's why John wrote the letter. So that we could know that we have eternal life. That's his purpose. John loves to inform his readers of the purposes of his writings. He did that in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he said, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and Son of God, and by believing you would have life in His name. So John wrote the Gospel evangelistically 
to convince non-believers about the truth of who Jesus is so they would believe in Him and become Christians. That's why often we tell non-believers who we have a good gospel conversation with that the first book they should read is the Gospel of John. It's a book written to convince us to believe. But 1 John was written to those who already believe to convince them that they really are saved. The Gospel was written to lead you to gain eternal life. 1 John was written to lead you to believe you really have eternal life. To give you confidence. And there are many such purpose statements throughout 1 John. In chapter 1, verse 4, John said, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. He wrote the letter to provide his readers with joy. In chapter 2, verse 1, he wrote, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He wrote the letter to promote holiness. In chapter 2, verse 21, John said, I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lies of the truth. He wrote to confirm them in the truth that they already believed. In chapter 2, verse 26, he says, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So he wrote to protect them from deception. And then, here in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So put all of that together. Put it all together. He wrote the book to confirm them in the truth, to protect them from deception, to lead them to assurance, and thus to provide them with the joy that that assurance produces. That's John's purpose. If you have the truth, you're preserved from deception, if you believe the truth, if you obey God, you'll find assurance, and all of that will give you fullness of joy. That's what John's doing. John wants these saints to have assurance of the joy that comes with it. So according to John then, believers can know they have eternal life. It doesn't matter what the Roman Catholic Church might say. It doesn't matter what Pelagianism is taught throughout history. It doesn't matter what some people who say, oh, you can lose your salvation. It doesn't matter what they say. Scripture says you can know that you have eternal life. In fact, if you're ever having a witnessing conversation and someone says, well, I just don't know where I'm going, and they seem content with that. A lot of times people have said that to me and it's because they just think there's no way I can really know. I like to point them to this verse. John says we can know that we have eternal life. We can know that we're in a saving relationship with God. We can know that we're headed for heaven. But how? How do we know that? Well, that's where the test of 1 John come in. Those who pass the three tests that John has presented repeatedly in the letter are the ones who can know they have eternal life. It's as simple as that. There's a test to be taken. If you fail the test, you know you're unsaved. If you pass the test, you can know that you are saved. The first test is the doctrinal test. The Christological test, we could call it. Back in verse 1 of chapter 5, just a few verses up, John said, 
whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. In verse 5 he said, Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In verse 12 he said, He who has the Son has the life. So that's test number one. Anyone who believes the truth about Christ, that He's fully God, fully man, Son of God, Messiah, that person can know He has eternal life. That's the first test. But it's not enough to pass the first test. Because you could pass the first test seemingly while failing the others and still be in a state of self-deception. So the second test then is the moral test. The moral test. Or the test of obedience. The test of righteousness. In chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, John said, By this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says I've come to know Him but does not keep His commandments is a liar. Very straightforward, isn't he? John's so black and white, there just seems to be no middle ground. You're either this or that. Two kinds of people. Those who obey the Word of God and give evidence that they truly do know Christ, and those who say they know Christ, but do not obey the Word of God and prove that they do not know Christ. They are lying about their profession of faith. In chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, John made the same point. There he says, little children... Make sure no one deceives you. That's so important. Make sure no one deceives you. So many professing Christians are headed for hell because they are deceived. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. Again, very straightforward. Two kinds of people. Those who practice righteousness as the pattern of their life and give evidence that they are born of God, and those who practice sin as the pattern of their life, and thus give evidence that they are not born of God, that they are children of Satan. Which are you? Which are you? Do you want to know if you're saved? Do you want to know if you're born again? Do you want to know if you have eternal life? Well, look at your life. Is your life marked by habitual sin as the dominant pattern of your life? If so, then you can know that you're unsaved. But, if that's you today, the good news is there's hope. Christ died for sinners. He rose again. And what you need to do is you need to repent and believe the Gospel. You need to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You need to acknowledge your sin, confess your sin, forsake your sin, and out of Love for Jesus. Turn to Him and trust in Him alone for your salvation. And don't fancy yourself that you have all this time. In the sovereignty of God, perhaps today is the day He'll end your life and send you into eternity. Maybe He'll never give you another chance to hear the Gospel again. So if you're not a Christian today, I plead with you to come to Him now while there's time. But if you look at your life, And by the grace of God, you see habitual righteousness, increasing righteousness, decreasing sin, obedience to Scripture, then you can know that you have eternal life. You can know. But then finally, there's the social test. Social test. The test of love. In chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, John wrote, 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Again, very straightforward. Two kinds of people. One who loves others and displays the reality that he's born of God. One who is not loving others and shows that he's not born of God. And again, love is not merely a feeling. It's not merely an emotion. It's not merely a word we use. It's selfless, sacrificial service. It's self-giving, self-defacing. The question then, is your life marked by selflessness or selfishness? Is it marked by love or hatred? Do you pass the social test, the test of love? Those are the three tests. Doctrinal, moral, and social. And those who pass those three tests can know they have eternal life. That's John's message. Eternal life is an absolute truth and certainty for those who pass the test of 1 John. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul wrote, telling us to examine ourselves, test yourself, see if you are in the faith. He doesn't say, notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, was there a point in your life that you made a decision to follow Jesus? He doesn't say, look back to the past in the beginning of your Bible where you wrote down the day you made a decision to accept Christ into your heart. He doesn't say that. Paul says, look now, today, examine yourself. Are you in the faith? Are you a Christian? How do we examine ourselves? One way to do it is by comparing our life with the book of 1 John. If you pass the test, you're a Christian. If you do not pass the test, something is wrong in your soul. And today's the day you need to get right with God. So the first absolute then is eternal life. We can know that we have eternal life. But there's a second one here. Second absolute. Number two. Answered prayer. Answered prayer. We can know that God hears and answers our prayers. We see that in verses 14 and 15. Look at verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. This is the confidence we have. Believers can have confidence. Believers should have confidence. Assurance of salvation produces confidence before God. Confidence before God. We've seen this word confidence before. It's the Greek word parousia. Parousia, it means confidence, boldness, openness. It could denote the idea of freedom of speech. It's a boldness that leads to confident speech. It's a boldness that causes us to open our mouth. And it's a very fitting word here, because in the context, clearly, this confidence is a confidence in prayer. It's confidence in prayer. This is the confidence, John says, that we have before Him. Before Him. The word before here translates the Greek word pros. Pros, and it could be translated with. It's the way the word is used in John 1.1 when it says the word was with God. It oftentimes, like it does in John 1.1, it denotes face-to-face communion. 
The word has the idea of motioning toward something. As we motion toward God, as we approach God in face-to-face communion through prayer, believers can have confidence, boldness, freedom of speech in prayer. So we have confidence before Him. But who's the we? Who are the ones that have confidence in prayer? It's the ones who know they have eternal life. The ones who believe in the name of the Son of God. Those who know that they are Christians. Those who pass the test of 1 John. You can't have confidence without assurance. If you think you're unsaved, if you think God's wrath abides upon you, you're not going to have confidence to go before Him, are you? If you think hard thoughts of God, that He's just a mean and angry tyrant toward me, you're not going to want to go to Him in prayer. But if you're confident you're a Christian, if you're confident that God loves you as a father, loves a child, then you're going to go to Him with confidence. The only person who can stroll across the king's floor at midnight with confidence is one of his own children. Sometimes that's not even the case, but sometimes it is. Children are the only ones who can have confidence in that situation. And we are the only ones who can go to God as Father in prayer with confidence. So this is then a confidence expressed in prayer. John has already linked assurance of salvation with confident prayer. If you go back to chapter 3 for a minute, chapter 3, There, John addresses the same topic of assurance. And starting in verse 19, he makes that same connection. 1 John 3, verse 19. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. That is, when we look at our life and we see love and deed and in truth toward others, then we can assure our heart before Him. Then we can have confidence and assurance of our salvation. And this is, verse 20 adds, in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, that is, if because we've come to have assurance of salvation and we've assured our heart before Him so that our heart no longer condemns us, we no longer have an accusing conscience, If that's the case, then we have confidence before God. There's that idea of confidence again. Same word, parousia. Verse 22, And whatever we ask, there's prayer, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. If we can look at our lives and see love and faith and obedience, then we can be assured of our salvation and that gives us confidence to go to God in prayer. Because we know that whatever we ask, we receive from Him. What father is there among you who, if your child asks for bread, you give him a stone. He asks for an egg, you give him a snake. How much more will our Father in Heaven give what is good to those who ask? We know we have what we ask from Him. Back to chapter 5 now. In Ephesians 3.12, Paul says, In Christ, we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. We can come to God in prayer with boldness because of our union with Christ. 
our union with Christ. Hebrews 4.16 makes the same point. There the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. We can draw near to the throne of God, the throne of grace in prayer with confidence. Because we have a sufficient Savior and a sufficient salvation. By the way, the ultimate ground of our assurance is not something we see in our life. The ultimate ground of our assurance is the finished work of Christ. The ultimate ground of assurance doesn't come from looking within. It comes from looking back to what Christ has done. He lived perfectly for us, fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf, died for our sin, took the punishment we deserve, was raised again, intercedes for us, and because of all of that, we stand perfect before God in Christ. That's the ultimate ground for our assurance. But then the secondary ground of our assurance becomes our love and faith and obedience, which is the result of the Spirit at work in our heart. And for those who realize the sufficiency of their Savior, the sufficiency of their salvation, and are assured that they actually possess that salvation, they can go to the throne of grace in prayer with confidence. So this confidence that John speaks of here is a confidence expressed in prayer. And it flows from assurance of salvation. And that becomes obvious from the latter half of verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. This is the confidence we have. That when we pray, God hears us. That's our confidence. And when John says that He hears us, he doesn't mean that God merely knows what we pray about. That wouldn't be very encouraging, would it? God is omniscient. God knows what everybody prays. God knows all things. God knows all our thoughts. That wouldn't be very encouraging if He just knew what we were praying. That's an obvious truth. Instead, what John means here by He hears us is that He hears us favorably. He hears us in the sense that He answers us. And that becomes clear from verse 15. Look at verse 15. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. God hears everyone's prayers in one sense, but in this sense, He hears us means He answers us. We have the request which we have asked from Him. That's what John means. So God, we can know that God will hear and answer our prayers. But there is a condition here. There is a condition. Many people would like it to just stop there. God answers my prayers. But there's a condition. What's the condition? The condition is we ask according to His will. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. The words anything in verse 14 and whatever in verse 15 are qualified by according to His will. This isn't anything without exception. It's anything that is consistent with the will of God. If we pray, asking in a way that is consistent with His purposes, His kingdom, His glory, His will, we can be confident that God hears and answers our prayers. We talked about this back in chapter 3. 
The Bible lists many conditions for answered prayer. One condition is faith. Faith. Jesus says in Matthew 21, all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. So we have to pray with faith. Another condition is obedience. Obedience. Back in chapter 3, verse 22, which we just read, John said, whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. God answers the prayers of those who are obedient. Those who pray with an obedient and submissive heart. In John 15, 17, Jesus said, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. It's a wonderful promise, isn't it? If the Word of Jesus abides in you so that you delight in it, and you love it, and you believe it, and you obey it, you can ask whatever you wish, and you'll have your wish. Because the Word of God will be guiding your prayer. Guiding your request. Another condition is to pray with the right motive. The right motive. James 4 says you do not have because you do not ask. But then in verse 3 he says, And you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. If you don't ask, God's liable to withhold something from you. But just because you ask doesn't guarantee answered prayer. Because if you ask with the wrong motives, with a self-centered desire to spend it on your own pleasures for your own glory, then you shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. We have to pray with the right motive. What's the right motive? The glory of Christ. The glory of Christ. John 14.13 says, Whatever you ask in My name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's the right motive. We pray in Jesus' name. That doesn't mean that when we pray, we superstitiously throw around, oh, in Jesus' name, Amen. It means we pray in a way that is consistent with His will, His character, and that brings Him glory. Glorifies the Father and the Son. To pray in His name is to do what John says here. It is to pray according to His will. Charles Spurgeon said, when your will is God's will, then you'll have your will. When your will is God's will, then you'll have your will. Because when your will is aligned with the will of God, God's going to do His own will. And since you want what God wants, you'll have what you want. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will grant you the desires of your heart. Right? If your delight is God's delight, you'll have your delight. If your desire is God's desire, you'll have your desire. God, if you're delighting in Him and in His Word, will plant His own desires in you, and then He'll grant you the desires of your heart. So we must pray according to God's will, because if we do, we know that He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request of which we have asked from Him. But practically speaking then, how do we do this? How do we pray according to God's will? We need to pray with confidence 
That demands that we pray according to the will of God. But how can we assure that our prayers are aligned with the will of God? Very simple answer. Pray the Bible. Pray the Bible. Take a passage. This is what I like to do. I recommend it to you. Take take your Bible. Open it up to a passage of Scripture. Preferably a psalm. Read the first line. And then pray whatever comes to your heart and mind. It might lead to praise. It might lead to thanksgiving. It might lead to worship. It might lead to request. And then, if your requests are coming from Scripture, it's much more likely that they're according to God's will and much more likely that God's going to answer your prayer. So you just do this. You open it up. You pray through the first line. Nothing else comes to your mind. You move to the next line. And then the next line. And so on and so forth. And then you never run out of content to pray. You have 66 inspired documents to pray through. I don't think you're going to run out of content. You won't have to worry about praying the same old things about the same old things anymore. It'll bring a freshness to your prayer life. So I highly recommend you do that. If you're looking for additional help with that, I recommend Don Whitney's book, Praying the Bible. Don Whitney's book, Praying the Bible. Very easy to read books, pretty small, and it'll powerfully help you learn how to pray through the Scripture and pray in a way that honors and glorifies God. So pray the Scripture. Another tip I can give you is pray the Lord's Prayer. By that, I don't mean repeat the words. I mean, let the Lord's Prayer serve as your model. Let it serve as a blueprint for you as you pray through the things that are contained in the Lord's Prayer. So pray the Bible, pray the Lord's Prayer, and above all, just know the Word of God. Know the Word of God. You can't know the will of God unless you know the Word of God because the will of God is revealed in the Scripture. So the best way to pray fruitfully and effectively is to know the Word of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 tells us, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. If your mind is renewed in the Scripture, you are going to know what the will of God is. And then, you'll be able to pray effectively. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul exhorts us with these words, So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Fools live with a disregard for the will of God. Wise people know God's will, and they do God's will. So don't pray like a fool. Pray like a wise man. Pray in wisdom. Pray the will of God. Pray like Jesus taught us to in the Lord's Prayer. What does He say? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray the way our Lord Himself prayed in the garden. Not my will, but what? Yours be done. All true, effective, fruitful prayer is prayer that submits to the will of God. So this is the confidence we have. If we ask anything according to His will, we know He hears us 
and we have what we ask from Him. So pray with confidence. Pray God's will. Pray God's Word. Pray the Lord's Prayer. And when you do that, you have the promise of God Himself in Scripture that He Himself will grant you your request. So two absolutes, two truths that we can know with certainty. We can be certain about eternal life and we can be certain about answered prayer. We can know that we have eternal life and we can know that God hears and answers our prayers. Aren't you glad you're a Christian? Aren't you glad that you have these glorious and magnificent promises? these absolutes, these certainties? If you're not a Christian, come to Christ and then you can have these absolutes. You can be confident about your salvation and about your prayer life. So two absolutes. We'll look at the other three next time. Unless you want to go for another hour. I don't think I'm going to get any tickers on that one. So we'll save the other three for next time. But for now... Let us examine ourselves and let us pray with confidence according to God's will for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the promises that are made to us in the Scripture. We thank You for these absolutes, these certainties that give our hearts confidence. We know that many people in our culture are deceived. They think they're headed for heaven, but in reality they're soon to fall into hell. We pray that the Gospel would go forth and would confront people in their deception and that people would be saved. I pray if there's any in our congregation this morning who may be in a state of self-deception, that you would be gracious that You would open up eyes and hearts to see the truth, and that You would grant genuine faith and repentance and bring these people into the kingdom of God. But for us who are really converted and who know it, because we look at our life and we see the evidence of the Spirit at work, I pray that we would have this confidence, that this assurance would grip our hearts, that it would remove fear of death and hell and judgment, and that it would give us a sense of freedom of speech to come into the presence of God in prayer, and that You would unleash Your will and Your power and Your glory in our life by answering our prayers, all for the name of Christ. Lord, please do these things, we pray. Amen.